Hey there, dog people of the internet. I'm Sarah Strumming, and this is Cog Dog Radio. Join me as I share my thoughts, experiences, and cases as I interview experts and answer your questions when it comes to the behavior of the dogs we live and play with. It's a new year and I have a news flash. Black lives still matter. I'm looking forward in 2021 to not only continuing to donate to causes that I believe in, but also to providing more of a platform for BIPOC voices in the dog world here on Cog Dog Radio. So stay tuned. Everybody, this week I have a special guest, Dr. Jessica Heckman. She's a veterinarian and she studies the genetics of behavior. She was the person I wanted to talk to when questions about spay-neuter continued to come up over on Patreon because I'm certainly not an expert on the whens and whys in that situation, but it is something that we need to talk about in the dog training field. Enjoy. Welcome back to the podcast. Will you share your name and pronouns with us? Yeah, I am Jessica Heckman, she, her. Awesome. So over on Patreon, I get a lot of questions regarding spay and neuter that I don't feel qualified to answer. And I actually know what a can of worms it is. So I'm like, I'm not qualified. (laughs) Don't answer them. But you happen to be a patron of the pod. And you mentioned to me that you would be happy to come on and talk about some of those things, which is just so fantastic. So to start, I actually think you should explain exactly what spay slash neuter entails, because the internet leads me to believe that a lot of people don't actually know. Yeah, and thanks thanks so much for having me on too. I always, this is a is this the second time I've been on, but you've been on mine and it's always a lot of fun. So yes, we, we do. Really, we have great conversations. <laughs> we do. Um, yeah. So when you said like, what is spay neuter? Uh, and then you, I think you are, you're interested in sort of all the different options, but it just reminded me of how little I knew about it before I was a veterinarian. It reminded me of the conversation I had with my vet about my neutered male cat in which I realized after the fact that my vet and I were at cross purposes and having this conversation because I had not, somehow I was still referring to my cat as having testicles because he had a sack still. Okay. And it just like, I just didn't know, like I hadn't taken anatomy and I didn't fully know. I was like, those are like, what do you call that? Um, yeah, scrotum. What do you call this? <laughs> I was still calling it his testicles. And my vet was like, well, we could neuter him. And I was like, no, he's neutered. And I remember the vet's facial expression just being like, I'm not getting into this with you. <laughs> and then I went to vet school and I was like, oh yeah, okay. I was, that was dumb, but that's, yeah. So I don't think that's exactly what you meant, but um, yeah, spaying is, is, is usually removing the ovaries and the uterus and neutering is usually removing the testicles. But you could also say that um, neutering more generally is rendering the animal incapable of reproduction. And there's mm-hmm. certainly a variety of ways of doing that, uh, both surgical and non-surgical. And we could talk about the non-surgical options as well, if you want, because those are interesting, although harder to do, particularly in the, in the States right now. Yeah. So it's, it's essentially rendering the animal sterile. Yes. Usually. So our traditional routes are going to be removing all the parts, removing the uterus and the ovaries for girls and removing the testicles for males. 
Yes. And that's yes. kind of usually what is done in the United States. Yes, the traditional, the traditional yeah. approach. And if you take a male's testicles when he's still very young, he may not have a particularly visible sack afterwards. But if you wait for him to grow up and to have really big balls, and then you take them out from inside the sack, he may have a visual sack. Um, yeah. So you may look and I mean, it's for those who know what they're looking for. It's the difference between an intact and a neutered male is really obvious, but you can also look and see, oh, there's an empty sack there. And that tells me something about how old he was when he was neutered and how, how big his balls were when he was. I'm so glad we're discussing sacks and balls here on my, on Cogdog radio. I feel like it's about time. (laughs) Right. You, sorry. Have you not done it before? I, I feel like this is the first time. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I, yeah, I can get explicit. I was on a <laughs> video presentation one time where I was talking about stuff down there. And I said, I think I said the word vagina. And then I pointed to my vagina to make sure that everybody knew what I was talking about. <laughs> you said, you know. <laughs> but that, right, in case you're unclear what a vagina is, it's right there. <laughs> After the fact, I was like, maybe that was unnecessary. <laughs> Oh, it's so good. Um, okay. Yeah, okay. So what are some of the less common surgical routes? Let's start. Sure. So should we start with girls? Um, yes. So, right. So what I said was you would take, normally you would take the two ovaries and the uterus. So one thing that you can do is you can take only the uterus and leave the ovaries behind. And that would certainly render the female sterile. So this is called an ovary sparing spay. And it's increasing in popularity right now. It still renders the female sterile because she she can't be impregnated because she has not got a uterus, obviously, um, but she still goes through heat cycles because she has ovaries. I have never done one of these. I was in shelter medicine uh, when I was in practice. So I did a year's shelter medicine internship. Um, so I was in shelter medicine and I did a lot of the traditional stuff and I've never done this one. So it can be hard to find a veterinarian to do it and it's, it's always been something I would love to see someone do it. So when I would do the surgery and, and remove the uterus, so the uterus connects to the cervix, which connects to the vagina. And when I'm going in from through the abdomen, right, I'm coming down and sort of pulling the uterus up and out to get at it. And I want to get down in there as close as possible to the cervix to remove it, to make my cut. But the cervix it's really way down in there and it's hard to, to pull it up out all the way. Um, and this is, this is fine for me when I was doing my sort of traditional approach. Um, you just leave a little bit of uterus because you can't get all the way down to the cervix. Right. Uh, but, but with ovaries. You, yeah. Yes, if you leave those ovaries in there, yes, then you, you can leave it a uterus. still have a pyometra. If yeah. Because any then you uterus. Yeah. So, so the person who does this has to really get it all. And I just have never seen it done. And I trust that it can be done responsibly. Um, I'm, I've always sort of wondered like, well, if, she goes into heat. I presume she'd go into standing heat. And if you let a dog actually um, have the tie with her, like if a fair amount of the cervix has been taken away, I guess I mean, the penis isn't going through the cervix, but it just feels like it might be painful. So that's just stuff that I, I don't fully understand because I haven't actually done it. But I would sit down and have a conversation with the veterinarian 
who you are getting to do an ovary sparing spay and make sure that they have experience. Make sure that it's not someone that you're just like strong arming into doing it mm-hmm. and being like, hey, leave the ovaries. Um, Cause that wouldn't be hard to do, but uh, there's a little more to it than that. And so make sure that they know what they're, they're doing um, and that they've had good experiences with it. Um, there, there was also for a while, a fad of taking out the ovaries and leaving the uterus um, with the idea, so like sort of naively. Was that a think, fad? Because that's that's what I had done with my. <laughs> oh, was it? Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's still. Well, again, I'm not in practice right now, and I'm not in shelter medicine right now, so I don't know what what people are doing. I will say that the goal of this is to have the dog. One of your goals is to have the dog be under anesthesia for as short a time as possible, mm-hmm. and as small an incision as possible. So the reason that I did it. Yes. With Iggy. Iggy is 12 and a half. She was spayed when she was eight or nine. And a surgeon did it laparoscopically. Ah, yes. And that was my interest was to have the least invasive surgery possible for her. And it was done by a Laparoscopically, that would make a lot of sense. Yeah. Right. Because you wouldn't have to pull the whole uterus out of the right. Any so to me, I'm going, if you have to open the entire abdomen, you may as well take it all out. Right. And, and so if you it can go in out laparoscopically. Way, yes. Well, exactly. So it turns out that the, if you're opening the whole abdomen, it actually is a little bit slower usually to yeah. leave it in than to take it out. And the, the yeah, yeah. That's kind of where I was coming from was, yeah. you know, if I went traditional, I would go full traditional. We would take everything. Yes. I happened to be able to get a boarded surgeon to do a laparoscopic ovariectomy for her. So and it was like amazing. It? it was such a fast recovery. Yeah. How fast? Like they told me to, I mean, they told me that she would be fine in a week to do agility. Uh, I didn't listen to them. <laughs> in which direction? <laughs> I, I didn't do anything active for two weeks. I was very conservative. And then I um, built her core strength back up. So she, but she was back to agility in a month. Nice. Nice. Yeah. I haven't actually seen one of those either. Cause again, I never, I was never in uh, the kind of practice right. where there was that, that kind of high-end high-tech stuff, but. Um, so, and then sticking with surgery, a friend of mine just had um, her dog had a vasectomy. Yes. So exactly. So then on the boy side, um, you can either take the testicles out and there's two routes you can do that, by the way. So we can talk about that if people care. But you could also have a vasectomy done so that, again, so that you get to keep the hormones. And again, he would act just like an intact male in that case. Right. Uh, and again, it can, be, it can be harder to find a veterinarian who is willing to do it and who has the experience of doing it. Um, I've, I've never done one of those myself, but I've considered if, like if I ever got an, int- I have an intact male in my house right now, and I've considered if I ever got an intact female in my house, I might have a vasectomy done on the intact male. I'd have to decide what yeah. I want to do in that case. And I'm, and we will get into why and, you know, all of that in a, yeah. in a little bit, but talk a little bit about the non-surgical forms of sterilization that we have. Yeah. So there aren't any good ones in the U S right now that I know of. Um, for a while we had, um, Zuterin, which mm-hmm. was zinc gluconate. And I really, I actually have performed that injection and, I, I liked that as an alternative because it's reported anyways to leave about 50% of the testosterone levels, 
Um, so you're basically injecting something directly into the testicle that causes the tissue to necrose and die. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a result, the, the boy dog is sterile, but apparently they've measured, apparently he still is making some testosterone. So you're still having some of the hormones on board. And I, and, and it's, it's non-surgical, you're just injecting, um, So it's a lot easier to find someone who can do it than someone who can do a vasectomy. The downsides to it are uh, that you really had to train and know how to do it. If you, so you're basically injecting some pretty nasty stuff into the testicle. Mm -hmm. And if you don't do it exactly right and you get even a drop of it sort of outside of the testicle, but like in the sac, in the rest of the scrotum, um, really bad things can happen. And then you have to go in and have a total, total scrotal ablation, meaning like, Everything has to be removed, sack and all. Yeah. Um, and that doesn't happen all that often, but that is a possible side effect and not fun. Um, dogs can feel a bit sick after it happens, so they might vomit. Um, and you do have to sedate them to do it. One of the one of the the ways that the company was pushing it was saying, oh, this will be faster for shelters because mm-hmm. they don't have to put dogs under anesthesia, but they still have to put them under pretty heavy sedation, which still really requires a you know a veterinarian around. Um, and because they have to hold so still. I've I've had a couple people say they can do it with some dogs while they're awake, but if the dog jerks again, you're going to get that stuff where it's not supposed to be. And the consequences to that are really bad. So you really kind of want the dog to be under, to be under for that. And then what it would leave behind with the, the testicles would shrink. So you can sort of tell, I remember one time we, I was um, working for one shelter. We went to another shelter and picked up some dogs there to bring back to the shelter where I was working. And I was giving a physical exam to this one dog named Tank. And he was built like a tank. He was this awesome pit bull type dog. And I, uh, I felt him up and I was like, well, he's got something here, but it feels sort of weird. And I was like, I bet this dog is zootered. And he was. So people can look at your dog on the street and see the testicles and assume that your dog is intact, even though he's sterile. And that is a problem for some people in some parts of the country. Uh, oh, because it is very stigmatized. Yes. Like, you yes. do get read the riot act sometimes yes. in public. I never have because my intact dog has long hair. <laughs> Mine are all furry as well. Yes. So it's, it's not really a thing, but um, it happens for sure. People yes. report it. So the company sold these cute little t-shirts that said, I'm zootered. <laughs> you can put on your dog. <laughs> um, but that's yeah. not available anymore. You said we No, so they, they this, this was their second attempt actually. Um, and they went out of business again. Um, and they are, some veterinarians still had some of it on the shelves, but the last of it expired a year or two ago, uh, which is not to say they might not still use it, but it's, it's technically expired. Last I heard they were doing okay in South America, but I think then I think I checked on that and they may be out of business there as well. It's, it's a tough market. And again, they tried to push it to shelters and they didn't really have a lot of success, uh, mostly because it's not that hard to neuter a male dog if yeah. you know what you're doing and you could do it pretty quickly. And so they weren't buying a lot of time and shelters really had to follow up with people. People didn't like it. Like for, um, for high volume spay neuter where people are bringing their dogs to and taking their dog home that day, people didn't like the dogs coming home and vomiting and looking so sick. And, you know, 
it yeah. just it wasn't it wasn't great for shelters. I think that they had the wrong market. I think that they would have been great for sport enthusiasts like you and me mm-hmm. who were like, yes, please sign me up for a simple shot where my dog still has some testosterone, but I don't have to worry about him impregnating things. Yeah, for um, sure. I think but so. they didn't they didn't recognize that market, um, maybe unsurprisingly. So so far as I know, no one is stepping in to fill that gap um, because this one company, so Arc Sciences is the name of the company, and they had tried twice um, and just had failed both times. So I it, that may be dead uh, for a while, which is too bad because it was a good option. Yeah. Do we have anything else non-surgical? Um, no. In Europe, you can have a Deslorelin or Superlorin implant put in in your male or female dog. Just, I would call it non-surgical. You're going to have a little incision to put it in, or you might they might be able to inject it again. Again, I haven't seen this done because it's not uh, legal to do in the U.S. The FDA doesn't okay. allow it in the U.S. So that is, I mean, you it, it renders the dog basically the dog uh, a, a bitch would go into heat, and then once she comes out of heat. She will not go into heat again for the length of the time that the implant lasts, which is six or nine months, depending on the implant, which means that you'd have to keep putting them in. So basically the way people use it um, is to see if their dog's personality is going to change once they're neutered. And if they like it, then they go have the dog surgically altered. And if they don't like it, they keep the dog intact, which is something else I would love to do with oh I would pay dog. I would pay so much yeah I was that ever trialed in the U.S. because I knew somebody who did something that was temporary to an intact male and she did not like it was done at Colorado State so it was something I wonder if that yeah they may have done it under some um, and so anyway yeah, and his, no. be, his temperament or his behavior changed dramatically mm. to for the worse mm. And so she was so happy that she didn't yes. just have him neutered. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Because then it wore off and he improved and yes. everybody went back to their life. I was at a conference about non-surgical sterilization, the ACC and D conference a couple of years ago. Oh my God. I can never, it's Alliance for Contraception in Cats and Dogs. Oh, uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And they talked about exactly this because everyone at the conference was saying, please, can we get this approved for use in the U.S.? There's huge demand for it. And they had someone who understood the regulatory hurdles come up and talk about it. And I don't remember all the details because it made my eyes cross. But it, the the sum of it was don't look for it in the U.S. anytime soon, if ever, because it costs a lot of money to go through all the trials. Yes, we know it works from the EU, but you'd have to redo the trials in the U.S. That's going to cost a lot of money. And there isn't enough, like from our perspective, the high-end dog owner, we think there's enough demand for it. But from the company's perspective, there's not. Which I totally understand. I, they're sure. probably right. I mean, to be honest, like I'm sure I think that a cultural shift needs to take place in order yes. for that to be viable in the United States. So you mentioned you're not a currently practicing veterinarian. So what is your experience with sterilization in pet dogs? Yeah. So after I graduated veterinary school, I did a one-year shelter medicine internship at the University of Florida. Uh, So I got to, I got to see some really different stuff. I'm from New England. That's where I went to vet school. So doing a shelter medicine internship in the deep South was really interesting. And we did a lot of spay neuter there. We did pediatric spay neuter. We did old dog spay neuter. Uh, We had this one 
uh, my uh, intern mate, Emily Swinarski and I had this like eight or 10 year old, probably eight year old, great Dane bitch. <laughs> it was the hardest wow. day I ever did. I remember we were like taking turns <laughs> in there up to our elbows. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I saw a lot of it then. Again, not the high-end stuff. Uh, although I will say I did, this was actually in veterinary school. I did get to see a laparoscopic surgery on sheep where they were super ovulating them and then um, taking, they were harvesting eggs uh, because mm. they were rare breed sheep and they were saving the eggs for the future when, whenever those breeds disappeared. So I did get to actually see laparoscopic surgery that time. Uh, which was really interesting. But anyway, so I did a lot of spay neuter that year. And I will say that surgery has never been my forte. Uh, I did improve a lot during the year. So I, I know what the, the basic stuff looks like for sure. And then after that, I did go into research. Uh, but I started doing webinars for FDSA and became aware that this was a question on a lot of people's minds. And so Sue Yanoff and I decided to do a pair of joint webinars in which we were going to talk about the academic side of spay-neuter because there's a lot of papers that have come out in the last 10 years or so talking about whether there are health consequences and behavior consequences to mm -hmm. spay-neuter uh, at all or spay-neuter at a particular age. And so I read a pile of those papers and put together a webinar, which I still give periodically. So that, so, so I do have experience both with the hands-on stuff, although it was a while ago, and then with what the research says about what the effects are. Which is, I imagine, such a huge project to sift through all of that and kind of funnel it down to, okay, this is what this says right now. <laughs> yeah, it's hard. Um, they were not fun papers to read, yeah. mostly because you can't do the study the way we want to do the study, right? The way we want to do the study is to take a collection of random dogs and bitches and a collection of random households and randomly assign the animals to the households and then randomly assign which ones get altered and which ones stay intact and mm. then collect really good long-term information about health and behavior. And there are so many reasons that study is never going to be done and should never be done, right? It's, it's unethical. It's incredibly yeah. expensive. It's incredibly time-consuming. It's just not happening. Um, so instead of that, what mostly what we can do is what's called a retrospective study, where we go and we look at veterinary medical records for places that have large, large databases of medical records. And try to, to piece out of that information about, you know, what the, what the truth is. That's the kind of study that we can do. But because these are sort of weird studies and they're asking, they're sort of trying to ask a whole lot of questions. And so you'll get these results from a study where it's like, well, there was an effect if, you know, if they did it, there was no effect if they did it younger than six months, but there was an effect six months to 12 months, but then there was no effect. 12 months to two years, you're like, okay, that's just statistical coincidence. Even, you know, you still, even though it's statistically significant, sometimes you still get false positives, right? And when you look at a, a finding like that, you're like, that makes no sense. Um, when you're asking so many questions, you're just going to have some, some mistakes like that. So I sort of had to read through them and then take a step back and be like, okay, well, overall, what do these look like? 
Um, but luckily, actually, a paper came out. Uh, well, time has no meaning now. So I don't remember if it was like a year or two years ago. Yeah. I don't remember if it was before. It may have been like right before the pandemic or. Was it right in the before the times? Or I don't not. remember whether I had a mask <laughs> on, whether I was, well, I was reading it. But um, there was a paper that came out as a review paper trying to summarize the work of a lot of the previous papers. And it has a chart in it. So remind me after this to get you a link to it. Um, yeah access and people can go look at the chart and so they have a list of the breeds that they've actually tested which is not every single breed but a list of the breeds that they've tested and then their recommendations per breed um male versus female mm -hmm. so that is that is nice and i i'm my recommendations might not be exactly the same as that chart but if you followed that chart i think you'd be in pretty good shape everybody um, that, loves that the chart we will make sure chart. that yes. we have the chart so yes. i think at least in the United States, I think that the big question for everybody is usually when, like when, like you've got one vet who tells you before six months, you've got, you know, a lot of rescue groups, spay and neuter puppies when they're tiny babies, seven or eight weeks old before they are put up for adoption. And then you've got maybe another vet saying, wait until after two years. There's a lot of different information that people are getting. So can you try to make sense of that confusion? Yeah, I can tell you what I think about each of those time points. And different people may have different answers, obviously, but I will, I will try to make sense of it. Um, actually, let me take a step back first and say that different people will have different answers based on where they're coming from. And it's useful to know where they're yeah. coming from. So I think that let's like, let's clarify. I think that what we are talking about today, you and I, is for the behavioral and physical health of the dog in question, not necessarily societal. Yes. Um, but yes, and in addition, people who have societal health in mind often will read the literature with sort of with rose tinted glasses. They'll read it from the particular angle of, I really want people to spay neuter early. Mm -hmm. And so they'll, I mean, the literature, as I just said, these papers can be interpreted in a bunch of different ways. And I'm, I'm happy to talk about that as much as you want. Um, but it's, you tend to read the paper and come out of them sort of cherry picking a little bit. Everybody does it, right? So everybody, if, I mean, you sure. do it no matter what your bias is, right? Yes. So if you come, if you're coming at it, reading it from a shelter perspective, you're going to be like, well, there's problems with these studies. So, um, so obviously they can tell us nothing. If on the other hand, you're coming at it from the perspective of I'm a breeder and I'm very concerned that people might be passing laws to limit how much we can breed or, you know, things like that. So you see a lot of um, theriogenologists, people who are highly trained veterinarians uh, specializing in, in animal reproduction medicine. Um, those people will tend to come out of it with the opposite perspective of, uh, well, definitely this is saying that spaying and neutering is really bad for the animals and you shouldn't do it. And so those are just polar opposite perspectives. And I always want to give people my perspective, which is a somewhat unusual one. I, I used to have more of the shelter perspective. I've sort of moved away from that. My perspective is if you really want your animals to have good health and good behavior, spaying and neutering is not the big hammer. So it's worthwhile to talk mm -hmm. about it, but there's other stuff that's a lot more important. I love the way you just phrase that, because I do think for a very long time, we have been taught that it is a big hammer. 
I remember my first dog that I had any kind of control over what happened with him. I got him, gosh, 20 plus years ago. And 20 plus years ago, it was very much, you know, one of the biggest things you can do for the health and well-being of your dog for his entire life is to neuter him and do it early. Yeah. And we just have been, we have learned so much. And yeah, I love the fact that this is, it is not the big hammer. There are other hammers yes. <laughs> to be thinking yes. about. <laughs> yes. Um, so, so when, if we're going to do it. Right, right. When oh, do we your, do it? Your question. Yes. Um, okay. So, so the first question is pediatric spay neuter. Um, I did a lot of this in shelters. The puppies and kittens recover very quickly. And is pediatric, sorry to interrupt you, is that under six months? Yes. Um, I I think different people might mean different things by it. What I am meaning is as soon as possible, which is Mm -hmm. seven or eight weeks. ASAP, Um, babies, tiny babies. Yep. That is, so I would, I would only recommend this in a shelter situation. So if you are bringing home a pet dog and it's coming into your house intact, uh, I would not be running out to have it uh, spayed or neutered by your you know, general practice veterinarian at, at eight or 10 weeks. But from a, a shelter perspective in the parts of the country where there is so much animal overpopulation and given that we don't have really solid evidence that this is, that it's a big problem, um, I certainly support shelters doing this. I think we are starting to move to a place where shelters might start thinking about whether they might be able to adopt out some intact animals. Mm -hmm. Um, And some shelters are starting to do this to, okay, I'm going to adopt it out intact, but require you to do it by six months. Some people will come back and say, I'd rather wait two years. And some shelters will say, that's fine. Um, You know, there's some parts of the country where that's just overpopulation is, is still enough of a problem that some shelters are not willing to do this. Some shelters aren't just aren't in a place where they're comfortable changing their policies in this way, but some of them are. So I think we're, we're moving in that direction and, and that's a good thing, but I also wouldn't say that it's a horrible welfare issue. It's not a horrible welfare issue to be uh, spaying or neutering at seven or eight weeks, but it is nice in my opinion for the animal to get to go through puberty. Um, and with the hormones intact and have all the benefit of that for growing strong muscles and, and have their, their bones. So one of the things is that if you neuter them before puberty, their bones may grow longer um, Mm -hmm. because the sex hormones are one of the thing that tells the bones to stop growing. And, you know, all of those things could be particularly for sports dogs an issue. So six months is, was sort of the traditional, the traditional time that veterinarians always said for the, you know, however many years, and that's mm-hmm. starting to come out of favor. Some veterinarians still say it because that's what they learned in veterinary school. Six months is a convenient time. You catch them before they go into heat or before they're ready to start, you know, the boys before they're ready to start mounting and you have, you know, very little chance of an accidental litter, but you are letting them get older and have some some benefit of those reproductive hormones starting to kick in. In the case of a household that can handle having uh, the bitch go into heat once or twice, and that can handle having an intact male dog for a while, then letting them get all the way through puberty, so letting the bitch get into heat at least once 
um, letting the male dog get to a year, year and a half. Uh, that is a, a good goal if you can do it. Again, if you can't do it, do not rip your hair out. Um, but if you can do it, and particularly if you want a sports dog, it is a good goal. I did have someone come up to me once, uh, uh, someone who I knew, and I knew her dog, and she was so stressed because her veterinarian had told her that she needed to wait for the dog to the bitch to go through her first heat before she spayed the bitch. And this was a very large, she was a Great Pyrenees Aussie cross from an, from an accidental litter. Mm-hmm. And this woman was like, I'm really worried that I won't know that she's in heat. And she had these two adolescent boys. And she's like, I'm worried that they're going to let her out. And I just, as she's saying this, I flashed back to several weeks prior when I had been walking around my neighborhood and this exact dog had come running up to me, trailing a leash with a, a young child <laughs> running oh, behind, hi. yelling at the dog to stop. And I was like, go ahead and save the dog. Right? It's fine. It's fine. This poor woman was so panicked. I was like, is not a big deal. Go ahead is okay. Um, but if you can do it and you, you know, you don't have a dog who you're worried is going to be set loose upon the world by your teenage son, um, then, then I think that is the ideal. And you keep mentioning, especially if you want to have a sports dog, can you talk some specifics there? What, what are sports dogs getting from these hormones? Right. So as I said, uh, the bones would be not quite as long, so they'd Mm -hmm. be a bit shorter and thicker. I don't know. So Sue Yanoff handled this part of the the research for me, but um, that just has them built more the way they were originally designed. Uh, you know, the way their, their genetic package was designed to have them look. I'm trying to avoid saying natural because that doesn't really mean anything, but um, it doesn't, but, but it's true. The, the early neutered dogs, um, you can definitely see the difference in the way that they're kind of assembled if you hold them up next to the dogs that had the hormones. And I know, I mean, there was at least one study that I'm aware of that looked at cruciate ligament tears and the yes. association with that. And of course, none of these studies are perfect. So none of them are completely conclusive, <laughs> but um Here's the thing about that study. Yeah. It did show that having the hormones on board longer was going to make you less likely to have the cruciate ligament tears. It also showed that the dogs that were spayed or neutered were significantly heavier um, uh, in terms of the amount of weight that they carried. So, so was it that the dogs were overweight or was right. it that the one group had their hormones? We don't know. Right. We don't know. So I, I would certainly believe that having your hormones could make you develop stronger ligaments. It certainly makes you develop stronger muscles. Um, I mean, that's, that's a large part of the reason I haven't neutered Dashiell. Mm-hmm. I really like his muscles. I do not have to work hard to mm-hmm. keep him slender. I do not have to work hard to keep him muscly. He is in great shape and testosterone does a large part of that just for me. Yeah, um, I will I say, that. yeah, in our household, we have there's a mixed bag. It's pretty much half and half spayed or neutered Mm -hmm. and intact. And when they're spayed or neutered, it is harder to keep them in condition for sport. Yes. Meaning it's easier for them to put on weight and it's, and they lose muscle quickly. Yes. Yes. So that's been my one complaint with, you know, when Iju was spayed at age eight, um, she was not done competing. She competed for two more years and I had to work a lot harder to keep her in condition. 
For sure. So one of the things that we might say then is if you have a dog that you choose to spay or neuter before they've really gone all the way through puberty and you have some reason that you want to do it early, one thing that you could do is just really make sure that you keep them in good condition. I And this is just my hypothesis. You know, there's no study out there saying that that's the solution, but that is certainly something that would not be a bad idea to do. I mean, we recommend keeping your dogs in good weight uh, and fit anyways. For sure, of course. So we're basically saying that you need to do what's best for your situation, weigh all of your pros and cons, because doing this uh, pre-puberty has the benefit of there's no risk for you in having an unwanted litter or contributing to an unwanted litter. Doing it after, there is that risk there. So you need to look at your familial situation and what's going on. And we believe that those hormones help our dogs stay in better condition longer and grow the way that they're supposed to grow, essentially. Yes. Is there anything else health-related that we should think about or know about? Yeah. So the other really big question, so we've covered the orthopedic issues, right? Mm -hmm. So the other big reason that people look into keeping hormones later is the question of whether they're protective against cancer. And those studies are some of the most eye-crossing ones to read. So it is pretty clear from a bunch of these retrospective studies that there is a correlation, uh, because we do see it again and again, that dogs that are spayed or neutered and it, it can have, you know, we don't know exactly what the right time, what the important time frame would be, but spayed or neutered dogs do seem to be more likely to develop cancer. Although multiple studies have also shown that spayed or neutered dogs live longer, which <laughs> I'm confused. I'm confused about those two right. statements. Right. So, um, I mean, cancer doesn't always kill you. True. Um, and uh, being intact can kill you if it causes you to roam and be hit by a car. Um, so that was one thing that they found can cause intact animals to, to die young, younger. Um, also infectious disease for whatever reason. Um, again, that may be a roaming thing that they're out looking for sex and they're more likely to get some kind of infection. So there are, and we don't know that that's why, right? Um, but there is definite evidence. And again, it has come from multiple studies that that spayed or neutered dogs do live longer. And we, again, and we also have no idea, like, is there a magic, because I know people are going to be like, well, what's the magic day of the dog's life? So I'm going to let them be intact so that they have all of the hormones on board so that they're muscly and then, um, and long enough that they don't get cancer, but then I'm going to neuter them just in time to have them live for a really long time. So we don't know. And the other important thing about these studies is that they're all, again, they're correlational. And so- you know, it's sort of like, well, are, is it that the spade and your dogs are living longer and therefore they're, they're developing cancer because they're living into the age when you develop cancer. And that may be true in some cases. It's not true in all cases. And I can, I will talk about the golden retrievers. So, or, you know, or is it that the dogs that are spayed and neutered are more likely to be brought into the veterinarian and the dogs that are intact? Because mm-hmm. um, a lot of the dogs that are intact, of course, are owned by breeders who take really good care of them and do take them into the veterinarian. But a lot of dogs who are intact are owned by people who treat them as backyard dogs. And so, you know, they may not get diagnosed with cancer uh, as readily because they may just not come into the veterinarian as readily. Um, So there's just a lot of questions there 
that really have to be untangled. So I think it's really important when we're looking at these at these studies to say, yes, they show the correlation, but does it mean that if you leave your dog intact, they won't get cancer? And I am certainly not at all ready to say that. Um, yeah, there are the this nice this nice review study that came out recently that went through and made recommendations per breed. It's really interesting going through and looking at the different breeds that they make the recommendations for, and seeing that the breeds that they say you should spay or neuter them later or not at all are the breeds that tend to get cancer more. So the breed, the two breeds that the, they say just don't do it at all are Goldens and Dobermans. And it's, it's like male Goldens and female Dobermans, I want to say. And like the female Goldens, they say do it at two years and the male Dobermans, they say do it at two years or something like that. But those are two breeds that get cancer at really, really high rates. Like the Goldens have clocked in at like 60 to 70% of them will develop cancer in their lifetimes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And the Dobermans don't live long enough to get cancer. Oh, I'm sorry, Sarah, people are going to get mad again. Um, Dobermans often get cancer, but they often (laughs) die earlier of heart disease. And so it's harder to say, like, if they weren't dying earlier of heart disease, would they get cancer later? But a lot of them that live longer do get cancer. So a lot of what we're seeing is that these breeds that are very likely to get cancer anyways, maybe you can mitigate it with not spaying or neutering them. And so that, that has two things that two takeaway messages for me. One is it's not the right answer for every dog because breed apparently does matter or cancer risk matters. And it's types of cancers too, right? It's only certain types of cancers. Other types of cancers, um, it's you would rather be spayed or neutered and then you're less likely to get them. Um, like the obvious one, like the tes- testicular cancer. Right, for instance, um, yeah, yeah. For instance, um, but there's others. Um, but the other thing, again, this is my bias, right? As a geneticist is that rather than saying, well, I, I'm getting a golden retriever with this, astronomical risk of cancer and I'm going to not spay or neuter him or her in hopes of reducing the risk of cancer. It's not going to reduce the risk of cancer all that much. Again, it is not the big (laughs) hammer. It is not not the the big big hammer. hammer. It's just not. So the, the whole risk of cancer thing, if I had a golden, I probably wouldn't actually neuter it because I would want those couple of percentile points, but I don't have a golden because I don't want to, I, I love goldens, right? My first dog was a golden. Me I too. Did before. Yeah. I love to have a field golden. Um, every time I think about it, I'm like, I uh, no, I can't deal with the cancer risk. I just can't do it. Um, so that's your big hammer is the breed. And um, you know about the functional dog collaborative and how I'm sort of trying to pull people together to put our heads together about how we can find some solutions to some of these problems. Mm-hmm. But that's that's the push I want to see in the world. Not let's spay or neuter less. Right. Spay and neuter again. It's genetics. yeah, it's not the big hammer because when it's we're not. talking breed tendencies, then by, you know, if it's in a breed, then we know there's a genetic component. Yes. You know, even if we can't point our finger right at it, right. Because yes. it's more complicated than that. We know that it's there. And so, yeah, agree completely. If anybody has not heard uh, Dr. Jessica Heckman's first spot on the podcast, which was talking about functional dog collaborative. Um, you definitely want to go back and listen to that because that is the big hammer is pulling our heads together and figuring this out as a community because so many breeds are in trouble. Dobes and goldens are high on that list, but there's a lot of other ones 
um, yeah. you know, flat coats, Bernese mountain dogs. There are so many dogs that are in real trouble when it comes to this. And I think when you're talking about the chart and the, you know, recommendations per breed, those are some other breeds that kind of came up as um, affecting having spay and neuter having an effect on the potential cancer risk because the cancer risk is already so high. So <laughs> now that we're all sufficiently not sure what to do, which because again, there is no right answer. That's why, <laughs> that's why we don't know what to do. But we do, I think, have a little better idea of when we kind of understand if we do want to do it, if we're sure that that's a thing for us. And I will say there's another, and I'm not sure if this was in the chart that you're referencing, but there's another um, chart that, I, that I'm sure was from an another study entirely about risk of pyometra by breed. Oh, interesting. And that helps inform kind of my decisions as far as yeah. spaying, because I know um, a friend of mine who has bull terriers was horrified that I left Iggy intact until eight because she said, does your breed not get pyometra? <laughs> and I said, well, I'm sure that they do. Um, certainly they do. But she was like, well, it was, it would be a guarantee in my breed by then that yeah. the bitch would have had a pyo. Interesting. So that's also, um, I will find that chart and put it in as well, because that's also something to consider. It was a, it was a European study. I want to say that it was Swedish looking at just, you know, ranking breeds as far as how, how often they get pyometra and that should guide you as well, as far as whether to do it or not. Like if your question is whether to do it or not, and you have a female, you need to be thinking about, yes. you know, are you basically guaranteeing that she's going to contract pyometra? Because if she is, you should spay her. So yeah, that you're not in an emergency spay exactly. type situation. Yeah, that was, that was what I wanted to follow up with was you could say, well, I'll just wait until she gets it and then spay her. Um, but uh, recommend against, right? Because you could, because you could. you could say that for sure. But there's always a risk that you don't catch it in time for, you know, before it gets disastrous. Um, because it can. So that's another thing to consider. I think thinking about your breed and your goals and kind of what your household looks like are all really important here. And I was pleasantly surprised to find out, I don't know if surprise is the right word, but I was pleased to find out that the rate of pio in Icelandic sheepdogs is about the same as in Border Collies, which is very okay. low. <laughs> so Okay. When people ask me about spay neuter, they're not asking me about health because they know I'm not a veterinarian. What they're asking me about is behavior. And this is a really hard question to answer. So again, if the health of our dogs, physical and behavioral is our number one priority, and that's kind of the lens that we're looking through, what, what matters? Like what, do we know anything about behavior, <laughs> behavior and spay neuter? Honestly. Right. So, I mean, for a long time, we had veterinarians had this recommendation. If the animal's aggressive, you should spay or neuter it and that will fix it. And it doesn't. <laughs> we come to find out, gosh, wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> um, there, was, there was this one, I went back and read some older papers from like the eighties. Cause I was just curious um, there was this one fantastic paper where they uh, they looked at it and um, 
and they concluded it's not statistically significant. So spaying and neutering doesn't actually seem to reduce aggression. And then they said, but we recommend that you do it anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. Of course. Good, good job. (laughs) Um, So that was, that was fun reading. Yeah. So aggression doesn't seem to be affected all that much. You'd think it would. You'd think that testosterone would predispose a dog to be aggressive. Um, It turns out that testosterone does have to do with aggression, but much more it has to do when the brain is developing, when the animal's young, like in the uterus, um, which is earlier than anyone ever spays or neuters. So um, (laughs) keeping it, keeping it on board in an adult is, is, it would be very rare that that would affect aggression one way or the other. I would recommend spaying or neutering, spaying or neutering an aggressive animal because I would not want that animal to reproduce, but it's, mm. I wouldn't recommend it for behavior change. Um, some things that it definitely does seem to affect are uh, whether a male dog is going to roam, whether he's going to mark in the house, um, whether he's going to hump things. Uh, those are all things that neutered males also do, but they apparently do them a bit less than uh, intact males. So those are those are definitely things you can see. Um, but I think people are asking you because there were some papers that came out recently that were very interesting that suggested that animals that were spayed or neutered uh, may be more likely to be fearful um, mm-hmm. than animals that were intact. And... One thing I want to say about those papers is that, again, they were done retrospectively. And one thing I know about the United States is that almost every animal that comes out of an animal shelter, A, had some kind of personal trauma, because it is traumatic to be taken away from your home and put through an animal shelter, and B, is spayed and neutered. Yeah. So that is something that I've never seen any of these studies control for. I would really like to see shelter animals just taken out of that equation. Yeah. And they, especially absolutely when we're talking about behavior, we really need, need dogs with kind of known and understood histories to, to really be able to make much sense of kind of what they do. I will say that there are some cases where, so specifically in the case of intra-household dog aggression between two intact males, if they are already fighting and have been fighting for like two or three years, you are not going to fix it with neuter. If you have an older male and you have a younger male coming up into sexual maturity and they start to have some conflict, you can help yourself to head off that conflict by neutering the younger male, not the older one. Interesting. That makes That's anecdotal sense. completely. That's just yeah. experience. Yeah. Um, and you won't affect anything by spaying your females. Um in, in that same situation, which is unfortunate. Um, and in fact, the statistical, and I can try to find this study for everybody, but statistically speaking, two spade females fighting in a home is usually the, the hardest to recover from. Yeah, that is scary stuff. Yeah, it's bad. It's some of the worst stuff that I, that I work on for sure. Um, so, and then I will add, you know, there's one other area One area that I have seen, it's only been a couple of times in my career, and again, it was males, (laughs) Um, where the male was, you know, when he was neutered, he was actually 
better able to focus and concentrate on sport. Mm -hmm. So when we have hyper sniffing type of behavior and, you know, literally they're just looking for sex constantly. If you remove that drive, they will, then your motivators, your food and your toys will matter more to them. That's not me saying go neuter your males so that they're better at sports. But it is me saying that if you've got a huge problem with that and you're constantly fighting it, it's something that you want to consider. Yeah. So I, you know, time was, I wouldn't ever have really recommended that someone neuter their dog in the hopes of having a positive behavior change. But uh, someone in my little personal local training group had, he was probably two at the time, uh, intact male Bernese mountain dog. Mm -hmm. And just all over the place, very friendly, too friendly, too barky, um, just too unable to focus. And it wasn't even the sort of the sex stuff, like you like the constant sniffing or something like that. He just like, just couldn't keep his shit together. Right. Yeah. Um, and she neutered him and it brought it down by, you know, it brought it down by enough that she was able to manage him much better. He was, it, he still had the same personality, um, but she was less worried. He was going to pull her over. Yeah. And, it's I've seen it yeah. just make them a little bit less scattered essentially. Yeah. yeah. Purely anecdotal. And like you, I'm typically not one to recommend neutering for to inspire behavior change, but it can happen in that way, in the sense that they're kind of able to see clearly. Yeah. And then other people do say that they have their dogs become less confident afterwards. Um, and I, yes. I do believe that that's the case. And this is exactly why I wish we could try it out. And I generally say to people, you can't put it back. So unless, you know, just be prepared that it could improve it or it would make the behavior worse you don't know that's the problem and that's why I would love love to have the um you know the the chemical implants here where we could just test it out for a while the other thing is you talked about how intra-household aggression it'll make dogs respond to each other differently um, and I'm sure you've seen that if you have a neutered male the neutered male tends to not like intact males um, that neutered and intact males, not intra household, but that they, you know, meet out in the world often do not like each other for whatever reason. It can happen for sure. I've seen it just as often with intact males, um, disliking other intact males for sure. Mm. That's definitely a, that's a big thing that is common, but also intact males essentially treating neutered males as, as bitches, <laughs> essentially um even you know attempting to mount or anything else like that and I think sometimes that produces yeah. conflict yeah. between them for sure the one other thing is that in our little world of sport dog people we often have a whole bunch of dogs and um you often you sometimes want to make your choice are you going to have intact males or are you going to have intact females yes um want both. if yeah. you're going to have both which I do because I'm a crazy person you need to make your choices as far as who you can live with still being intact and who you can't. So if the dog, if you have a male who is non-functional every single time a bitch comes in a season in your home, which I've definitely experienced, then you might choose to neuter him for your sanity. And I wouldn't hold you accountable for that. I don't, I don't think that that's a bad thing. <laughs> no, that sounds like an excellent reason to neuter a dog to me. I mean, I've typically said you get to be an intact male as long as you don't act like an intact male. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, 
And, you know, it just, it kind of happens. And I do think that too often we neuter unreasonable male dogs, but we collect semen on them and breed them anyway. Mm. Yeah. And then we make more and more unreasonable intact male dogs. Having lived with intact male dogs who are lovely, perfectly wonderful animals, Mm. and then having lived with the opposite. I think some people don't, somehow don't believe that there can be intact male dogs who are lovely and able to handle themselves around bitches in heat. I suppose if you haven't had one, you might not believe that such unicorns exist and you might go yeah, ahead and, and read assuming that they're not yeah. out there. So that's an important message that they are out there. They're that, out yes, there. That is probably genetic and you probably shouldn't breed. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. how I feel about it. <laughs> Just more of we don't know, but you and you can produce detrimental behavior changes. That's very true. You can um, certainly the dog can lose some confidence, but it also, you know, I've I have one client right now that we're actually sort of trying to investigate hormone replacement therapy for him because his behavior declined drastically oh. about thirty days post neuter. He's got. I'll have to talk to you about him because he's got some other things too that I think are interesting and weird, but. Because of course, because that's who I get to work with. Um, you love it. <laughs> I do. It wouldn't happen any other way. So um, we have a whole lot of we don't know. We have a whole lot of well, we know a lot, and therefore you basically have to make your flow chart to make your decision. But can you? I'm wondering if we can make a general statement regarding if the physical and behavioral health of our dogs is our number one priority. Should the knee-jerk automatic desire to sterilize them as an idea sort of die? Well, that's a big question. Um, I think, yes, I think it shouldn't be knee-jerk. I think we're still in a place where it should be on the table. Um, And you and I have talked about a lot of the reasons why you might legitimately do it, but Mm -hmm. doing it by default yeah. Um, I think for people who can handle their dogs, I don't think there's any reason to do it by default. Um, and by handle, I mean, not let the dog run loose in the neighborhood. Um, right. And I think, you know, veterinarians need to look at who their clientele is as a whole, right? Because if you yeah. are, you know, if you have a clientele that is largely, you know, I'm just imagining that perhaps if you're a veterinarian in Seattle, which is population-wise, a lot of people who don't have children and do have dogs and kind of treat their dogs as children. (laughs) And there are not dogs running amok and there's not a big homeless dog population. Our shelters here pretty much import dogs from other parts of the country and parts of the world um, because we don't have just, and, and, you know, other eastern eastern parts of Washington state, more rural parts of the state. So I'm thinking if you're that veterinarian, you might be going, you know, I want to just be having a conversation with my clients rather than this automatic right. starting to push the spay neuter at six months. Yes. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. Um, exactly. That it's, well, it should remain on the table. It can be a useful tool, but I think the the default of everybody needs to do it. And if you're, if you're not going to do it, it's an exception. And, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to try to talk you out of it. Yeah. I think exactly having the conversation, figuring out where people are coming from, what the household is like, 
um, what other dogs are in the household, what other people are in the household, what their expectations for their dogs are, um, whether they're prepared to handle living with an intact animal, which is just in, in often not as hard as people think it is. Although I haven't lived with an intact female yet. <laughs> it um, depends on her. Sometimes it's a piece of cake. Yep. Sometimes it's not. <laughs> yep. uh, but yeah, no, I love the idea of veterinarians talking people through it and just figuring out what's right for them rather than automatically saying, this is, this is part of the package, right? This is, this is what you do when you are a, a good, responsible dog owner. Yeah, because culturally, so I'm going to say that that's kind of the conversation that I would want a veterinarian in, for instance, downtown Seattle to be um, having with their clients. That's also the exact same population of adults who've been really inundated that spay-neuter is the only responsible way to have an animal. Yeah. Which that gets us really into functional dog collaborative territory for sure. It's ironic. Yeah, yeah. Because that's a cultural problem that in order for this to not be the default, a cultural shift has to take place. Yes, for sure. And starting to think about what the pet overpopulation problem looks like, is that is why spay-neuter really became standard in a time when there was a lot of pet overpopulation, meaning that we were euthanizing animals and shelters for space at the rate of millions or dozens of millions a year. Um, and that was when we started really pushing spay-neuter. And I feel like it sort of started coming along for the ride of, you know, well, this is what responsible owners do. And therefore, perhaps there's benefit to the owner and perhaps there's benefit to the dog. And now we're starting to take a look at what are those benefits and maybe they aren't relevant for every single owner. Um, so then it's time to start asking the question about overpopulation. And there are absolutely parts of the country where there is no longer uh, dog overpopulation. Um, cats are, are different, but we're starting to sort of see the light at the end of the tunnel in some places, some parts of the year, not this part of the year, mm -hmm. not high summer. But for dogs, absolutely, like where you are and where I am, it is not that easy to find a dog. And that's really hard to find puppies. And there aren't puppies in shelters. Um, and people who do have oops litters do tend to manage them very responsibly and not expect shelters to take them. We don't have the same population reasons to do it that we used to. There are certainly other parts of the country that still have dog overpopulation. When you start looking at the statistics, you can see that that has plummeted relative to where it was and is continuing to come down. Best Friends, a very well-known animal welfare organization, is hoping to have euthanization for space basically be a thing of the past by the year 2025 in the United States. And in That's some parts true. of, in some parts, it's already a thing. It past. is already, yeah. it is for sure already a thing in many parts, um, in many areas, in many areas, it's not, but we are, they are seeing them headed in that direction. You know, these are parts of the country where they are transporting animals out because they have so many animals. Um, and so in my part of the country, New England, we're transporting animals in and we're starting to say, we're starting to see that we're not getting the same kinds of animals that we used to, right? We used to be able to transport up from the South and expect a lot of highly adoptable small dogs, young dogs, dogs without behavior problems. And that population is changing and we're starting to, um, you know, receive in the transports fewer of those and more dogs with behavior problems, fewer puppies, um, more 
pity type dogs who can be lovely pets, but are not what everybody wants. And when you have a shelter that's completely full of them, uh, then there's there are people who are going to have to go elsewhere to look for the type of dog they want, be that small, uh, fluffy. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, that's that's changing and it's it's changing everywhere. So we're not there everywhere, but it's changing everywhere. And I it's certainly a good time to start thinking about it in the parts of the country where the overpopulation is so is not anymore. It's it is certainly a good time to start thinking about whether keeping dogs intact longer makes sense. Um, and even whether what our breeding practices are going to be, right? Like it in the 50s and 60s, we were breeding dogs were breeding themselves. They were going out uh, for the day and sometimes the female would come home pregnant and those puppies maybe would be taken to the shelter but adopted out. And that was in large part where pet dogs came from. Mm -hmm. We are producing pet dogs in very different ways today. Um, But we're sort of losing that emphasis on the good family pet, on breeding for a dog, selecting dogs that are good in homes and breeding those dogs. And there's a lot of those dogs that are coming into homes spayed and neutered or or coming into homes intact and being spayed and neutered that maybe would be good breeding candidates um, but we're focusing on other approaches instead right so essentially our bottom line is that you and I would both really like to see a cultural shift surrounding the sterilization of pet dogs that it isn't necessarily the badge of good dog ownership to do I mean I know some people who, you know, like members of my family who would never hear this podcast or even understand what I do for a living remotely, um, (laughs) are a little horrified to find out that half the dogs in my house are intact and that a few of them are breeding candidates and that I would be all about that because they think that's bad dog ownership. Yeah. Well, that's what we've been taught for a long time. Yeah. Because that, I mean, if we could just get whoever was responsible for the spay neuter movement to get behind some other things, like, I don't know, wearing a mask, for instance, we could maybe really do something here in this pandemic. Um, (laughs) Like, whoever was responsible for that, can we get you involved? Um, Because it's, it's pervasive. Everybody thinks it. Everybody thinks spay neuter is the right thing to do. Yeah. I certainly remember when that was how I felt. I mean, yeah. for sure. So it should not be a default. It should be something that is carefully considered for your particular situation. And you, the human and your family are part of the situation. It's not just the dog involved. And we don't have, you know, there isn't a, a one right answer because there are so many complexities involved here. So you started this out by saying that all of your viewers had lots of questions. Um, so I'm glad that we've gotten all their answers and they're all going to be completely satisfied with your podcast now. hundred percent satisfied. Right? I think everyone be now like, knows checklist. we have answered all questions <laughs> that ever have been about spay neuter and there will not, there will never be any more questions posed to me about spay neuter again. I always wonder why people have me on podcasts because I never give any real answers. I'm always like, well, it depends. It's complicated. You should have a conversation about it. That's basically my answer to everything. But you do have a lot of information. And on that <laughs> note, this is actually some a decision you help people make sometimes. So this is something that you consult um, with people on, which I think is fantastic. And I actually, for one of the dogs in my house, wish I had known you then. Oh, because I totally would have paid for that. 
and would have been really yes. excited about it. And in fact, when Iggy was a young dog, I remember agonizing. She, when she was like a year, year and a half, I thought I was going to do it because I didn't want to breed her. And I wanted her to have this competitive career. And I mean, my vet at the time, who's still a good friend of mine, and I just, I agonized. She called people. She talked to people. She was like, this is why you can't just have a hysterectomy. I mean, like it was, wow. I mean, it was a <laughs> very in-depth. I, the word agonized is the right word. And Knowing you, I would believe that. Yeah. <laughs> and it just being able to consult with someone like you, you know, if somebody else is having that agony, just being able to have that conversation with you, I think would be worth so much because it could help you not have this agony. Cause my vet was also coming from a place of being a small town vet who does spay and neuter everything. Yeah. Right. And so she totally understood where I was coming from she wasn't villainizing me about it at all but it wasn't her wheelhouse I mean you know when I'm talking about doing a ovariectomy or a hysterectomy instead of a traditional spay she's like I actually she's like I'll find out if anybody can do that but I can't do it for the reasons that you mentioned earlier yeah you actually have to be trained yeah yeah (laughs) Yes, you can't just do it. Well, and she so. said, you know, that she, if she even tried, she would be open to, um, you know, malpractice to, sure. if anything went wrong, because yeah. it's not standard practice. It's not standard of care. Yeah. So where can people find you if they're yes. interested in that kind of thing? So the first thing I want to say is, let me just like just don't agonize. I want to say to people before you come give me money, just don't agonize about it because probably what I'm going to tell you is, well, what do you want to do? Okay. Do that. That's probably what I'm going to say. And you can do that for yourself. This is such a great pitch for your service. Um, I do actually really enjoy these consults. So I'm not actually trying to drive people away. Um, and the kinds of people I've, I've done very few of these um, for this exact reason, because mostly people listen to me talk about this and they're like, oh, I can just do what I wanted to do and it will be fine. It will be fine. Um, but I am more than happy, certainly to sit down and talk you through the various possibilities and what might be best for you. Um, and I'm also happy to talk through the research with you if you have particular questions about it. Um, so all that kind of stuff. So, um, so I do have a website, animalhealthadvice.com, where you can go and, and fill out a little form and say you want to consult and here's my question. Honestly, if you just send me email uh, at jph at dogzombie.com, you can also do it that way and I'll just tell you. Can just ask you'll me tell them to not you. agonize and do what they want <laughs> I'll tell them not to agonize. I didn't know what I wanted so I think that right. was that's where the agony came in because yes. I was very torn I didn't want an accidental breeding I didn't want pyometra I didn't want mammary cancer but I did want a strong healthy sport dog yeah and I, w- I was very torn and I am very glad that I didn't spay her as a young dog now yeah but I did every single time she had a heat cycle, watch her like a hawk for a pyometra after. I mean, it was a little ridiculous. The number of times I had blood work done right after <laughs> heat cycle is a little ridiculous, but that's, that's funny. Yeah. So maybe if you're a high anxiety owner, then that's something <laughs> to take into account when you're making the Me? decision. <laughs> high anxiety. 
<laughs> of course not. Did um, you call it a yes. SWAT team when Felix was uh, was missing for a few hours? Um, yes, yes, yes. That's pretty much um, the yeah the short version for sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's me. So. I love it. People will, I think you actually are going to get people that want you to help them because how nice to just have a sounding board of a person who understands the entire, the entirety of this situation to almost maybe confirm your decision or, um, or yeah, if you're like me and you're literally split down the middle and can't decide and having, you know, middle of the night panic attacks about it. pay somebody to help you. <laughs> I am I am certainly happy to talk to people and I'm completely non-judgmental about it. Um I think people can hear coming away from this that I'm basically pretty much fine with whatever you decide to do. Um, you you are and that's actually one of the reasons too that the functional dog collaborative is such a non-judgmental space. So the website for that is is it functional breeding or functional it's functionalbreeding.org. Functionalbreeding.org. Yes. And yes, everybody should check that out as well. Yes, it has a very active Facebook group that has just passed 8,000 people. Oh my gosh. Crazy. Um, and we have a lot of structured conversations there. So people do post and talk about their own things, but we also, the mods come up with questions and put those out. Um, so it's uh, it's a lot of fun and I'd love to see more people joining it. Well, I think everybody will run over there. Thank you so much for this conversation today. Thanks. It was a lot of fun. Are you on Patreon yet? It's where you can get all the extras for this podcast. The original tier over there still exists, where the dog people of the internet provide the questions for the episodes and guide the content of the podcast. But there's a new tier. You can become a Cog Dog Arena and get access to my training sessions with my own dog. So that includes agility, obedience, behavior, and stuff with my brand new puppy, Rhea, live guest chats, and more. So go to patreon.com slash cogdogradio. The link is in the show notes. You don't want to miss out.